the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. The following program was pre-recorded, and the views expressed do not necessarily represent those of this station or its management. Get ready to take notes because school is now in session. Tackling the biggest issues in education, this is Education America. Save the classroom, save the country. Here are your hosts, Headmaster Rebecca Hagstrom and co-host Abigail Johnson. Welcome to Education America, where we're working to save the classroom so that we can save the country. K-12 education is the playing field where the battle is on for the future of our country. And as the 16th president, Abraham Lincoln, succinctly stated, the philosophy of the schoolroom in one generation will be the philosophy of government in the next. How true that is. It is very true. So it's great to be together again, Abigail. Always so much fun. Always enjoy doing this show with you. And today we have on a special guest and author, Anthony Sanders. Uh, Anthony Sanders is the director for Center of Judicial Engagement at the Institute for Justice and a senior attorney. And he has recently written a book that he is coming on the show to discuss with us this evening. We really think that it's fascinating material and things that all of us, as we try to continue to be civic participants and make sure that we're up on both the our, the history of our country and the laws of our country, Mr. Sanders' book is an excellent resource for all of you. Welcome to the show, Mr. Mm-hmm. Sanders. Thanks so much. Thank appreciate you both having me on. Yeah, it's great. Well, again, first off, congratulations. We're very happy for you to. It's a big accomplishment to write a book, and um, it doesn't it doesn't come easily. And especially when you're working full time and you're a father of a couple of kids. I'm sure that this has been a process, and so congratulations on completing that. And your book, Baby Ninth Amendments, How Americans Embraced Unenumerated Rights and Why It Matters. So can you explain to our listeners what unenumerated rights, that's a mouthful, I can't say that 15 (laughs) times in a row, Uh, especially today, right? Uh, But I think everybody has probably heard the term enumerated rights, but unenumerated rights you know, intuitively are the opposite. But why don't you tell us a little bit more about that? Yes, yeah. And thank you uh, very much, Rebecca, for those kind words. It is a, a quite an undertaking to write a book yeah. and then get the book published, which is often yes. the hardest part of, <laughs> of writing a book if you're not uh, an established author. But I found a, a very good partner at uh, University of Michigan Press that is uh, has oh. a book coming out. And probably by the time your listeners are listening to this or not long after, it will be available for sale. It's available for a pre-order as we're recording this. And it also will be available uh, for free if you want the electronic version, hmm. um, which wow. is uh, which is pretty neat. So, yeah, that's great. Um, the listeners can, yeah, you, you can you can feel free to, to check it out. Um, the, the book, yes, uh, is focuses on 
unenumerated rights, which unfortunately is quite a mouthful and quite a lawyerly word right. for what we're really we mean unlisted rights. That's mm. the best way okay. to, to mm-hmm. think about what these rights are. And it's mm-hmm. about those rights, how they're protected by state constitutions, not the U.S. Constitution. Mm. So we all know about the U.S. Constitution, and we're very familiar with a lot of the debates about it, and you hear things about right, separation of powers, federalism, the First Amendment, search and seizure, all those things in the, in the U.S. Constitution. Mm. But there's one part of the U.S. Constitution that you unfortunately don't hear very much about, and it's the Ninth Amendment. So you count one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight. You get to the end of the Bill of Rights, and then there's the Ninth Amendment. Okay. And it says the enumeration in the Constitution of certain rights shall not be construed to deny or disparage others retained by the people. Hmm. And the Supreme Court, as other than a couple small exceptions, never really said much about the Ninth Amendment, even though if you read it, you think, well, this sounds pretty important, yeah, right? You yeah. have all these other rights, and then it says others retained by the people. Yeah. So what a lot of people don't realize, including a lot of constitutional scholars, hmm. is that this language has been placed into most state constitutions, including Minnesota's constitution. Hmm. And so my book explores what does that mean? Every state constitution has its own Bill of Rights. Most are actually longer than the federal Bill of Rights. Minnesota has uh, rights in it that you would be familiar with from just reading the U.S. Constitution, but it has additional rights in there uh, as well. It has Uh, For example, stronger protections for religious liberty that are enumerated rights in the the Bill of Rights. But then it has this language about rights, other rights uh, retained by the people. So those, I argue, are unenumerated rights. They are other rights that you can't deny or disparage just because they're not listed. They're actually also important rights that are also protected and what my argument is, is that these are a way of, of when someone is writing a Bill of Rights, for them to say, et cetera, et cetera, at the mm-hmm. end. We list a bunch of rights, but you never can list everything that's important to right. human liberty. And so you have some language at the end that says, you know what, there's other ones that are important too. And uh, one of those rights, I, I should emphasize, that uh, we can talk about is a long-established unenumerated right, and that's the right to direct the education of your child. Mm-hmm. I was wondering about that because you and I, we, we, we've had you on to talk about school choice here before. Mm-hmm. And so, yeah, why don't you go on and tell us more about that? That's very interesting. Sure. So the the U.S. Supreme Court has sloppily, intermittently um, (laughs) gone back and forth over the years in protecting some rights beyond just those enumerated in the Constitution. Unfortunately, it's never used the Ninth Amendment. It's used uh, this uh, other provision in in the uh, 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 two provisions, in fact, in the Constitution called the Due Process Clause. Mm -hmm. And one of those rights is the education of your child. And it famously did this 
in a case that actually is just celebrating its 100th anniversary and that we just um, put together a conference on. We, we think uh, so much of it, and it's so important, uh, a couple months ago, hmm. and that is called Meyer versus Nebraska. Okay. And it was a challenge to a law in, in a few states, but um, most significantly in Nebraska, that pr- uh, forbid schools, including private schools, from teaching foreign languages. Uh, this what? is right after World War One, and there was a xenophobia, especially uh-huh. directed towards German immigrants. And so a few states actually passed these laws, and then the state the it went to the Supreme Court. Supreme Court said, you know what? Even though it's not listed in the Constitution, there are certain fundamental liberties that are so important that they are also protected. And it it gave a few examples, one of them being um, the right to earn a living and one and another one being the really the one that was an issue in that case. Mm -hmm. A couple years after that, the state of Oregon, uh, in an even more flagrant um, example of of violating uh, parental rights mm-hmm. uh, passed through uh, through a uh, initiative uh, adopted a law that forbid children uh, primary age children from going to private schools. What? Just outright <laughs> You've basically be banned private this schools. Is, did, what state was that? Did you say Oregon. Montana? Uh, Oregon. Oregon. Yeah, it was a measure that was uh, that was backed by the KKK. It was you know ex- ex- extremely anti-immigrant, anti-Catholic, uh, oh but gosh. it passed. And so that was challenged, um, as you you might imagine, by both a Catholic school and um, a military school. Mm -hmm. And that went to the Supreme Court, and they said, you know, following this case from just a couple years ago, uh, the the state cannot forbid um, a a parent from choosing a private school. Now, it didn't say in that case what, you know, reasonable regulations, say, a state could have about private education, or it didn't talk about homeschooling, for example, that would be left to another day. But it can't just outright bid um, your choice to partner with someone else to educate your child instead of going to the state-run school. Mm -hmm. And so that is an unenumerated right that um, uh, one of very few that are protected by the federal courts. Mm -hmm. So when you when you look at state constitutions, unless you're dealing with the federal government, um, you, your rights are protected by a state constitution just as much as a federal constitution. Um, there's a, a judge, a uh, federal judge in the uh, Ohio uh, called Jeffrey Sutton. He's written a couple great books on state constitutions. And his way of putting it is if you're dealing with a, a state or local law and um, you you're trying to argue that, you know, it's unconstitutional, it, re- it violates your rights. It's basically you have two ways to win. It's like you're going up for a free throw, and you have two free throws, one regarding the federal constitution, one regarding the state constitution. Mm. So if you're, if you're arguing for your rights, um, you're, you know, no one, no one goes up and, and takes a free throw and says, you know, I'll pass on the second one. <laughs> right. Of course, they all take two free throws in a basketball right. game. Right. Well, the same is true when you're thinking about whether you're a lawyer or you're just thinking through, you know, um, how this, how a law affects you. You need to think about your own state constitution in addition to the federal constitution. And so my argument is that um, when when Americans put constitutions together, 
And of course, they put the U.S. Constitution together and they've amended it a few times. But much more than that, they put together their state constitutions. And when they do that, they are they think very broadly about what rights are protected. Um, And so when we think about what the government can do, how the government can regulate us, how the government can regulate our choices in education, Mm -hmm. they need to err on the side of liberty, not on the side of state control. Mm -hmm. And that is especially true when you are in a state like Minnesota that has one of these protections that I write about. Yeah, that's so interesting. And so how do you think um, this gets implemented? Because right now... um, what you would say is that our judges are not necessarily protecting, or do you think what really is happening is that parents aren't necessarily aware, and so then they aren't even raising these cases before the state Supreme Courts? Or is it that the judges are not acting in a manner consistent with your unenumerated rights proposals? Sure. Um, I think it's a, a mixture of judges not acting and people not raising them. But primarily, unfortunately, like has happened to some extent of parts of our of the US Constitution, our state constitutions have been ignored, including these provisions that I write about what Mm -hmm. I call baby Ninth Amendment. Mm -hmm. Um, Now, there are exceptions over the years. And I I write about these in the book. And I show that you know, far from my uh, argument being that uh, some, this is some unworkable thing that the people never asked for. Actually, when judges take the Constitution seriously and um, they allow people to bring these kinds of claims and they take those claims seriously, uh, you have a good balance between good government but also respect for individual liberties. And in the education sphere, I think that that um, would be true. Mm-hmm. Uh, when If someone would say, bring a claim such as this about uh, their ability to start a school, their ability to send their child to uh, a certain school, their ability to homeschool. We just had at our conference a speaker um, argue that this that these precedents that I talked about earlier, Meyer and Pierce from the 20s, mm-hmm. that they very much would apply to homeschool. And homeschool is interesting because you have a, a parent educating their child, so making a parental choice for their child. But at the same time, the, edu- the, the parent is, in a sense, practicing a profession, yes. the mm-hmm. profession of teaching. It's just a profession to your own individual child. And I think this could have interesting ampl- implications for, say, uh, right, the, what, what we started hearing about during the pandemic, and I, I think it's continuing, is, is kind of the, the old schoolhouse slash yes. Pod school. Yeah, the micro right? schools. Now we call and, pod school. It mm-hmm. used to be the, the one-room schoolhouse right. where a few families get together, yep. right? And, do, and I know this has happened in homeschool circles for a long time, but they, a few families get together and educate their children. And so if you had some you know, silly bureaucratic rule that got in the way of that or said you can't do it at a home because you don't have, you know, it's not up to um, municipal fire code for mm. a commercial building mm-hmm. where you only have a handful of people in the house or something the, uh, like that, uh, especially when you, when you talk about zoning laws, which themselves have yes. a lot of problems. Yes. You could have this kind of, uh, kind of argument. So I see a lot of possibilities there, but unfortunately over the years, 
uh, judges have not taking, taken the idea of unenumerated rights seriously in state constitutions, and so there's some work to be done there. Mm, wow. That's really... It is. I, I, this is so new to me. I, I I have to admit that I didn't even. I don't know that I've ever even read that Ninth Amendment, and so thus your reason for writing the book, which is you know excellent. But the audience that this book seems like you almost need to promote this is yes with families um, with young kids in schools, but also even amongst your peers, your lawyerly peers, your your the judge peers. Um, have you had any opportunity to um, get your book? Well, it's not even, I guess, quite out yet. But do you have plans to try to get it in front of certain people to? Yeah, kind of a definitely. Yeah. yeah, and and you know the the book is pitched to a few uh, different uh, ang- uh, a few different groups. I'd say within the legal community, absolutely. I like anyone who's interested in individual liberty and. Uh, American history, a lot of it's just really history yeah. about how state constitutions were formed uh, over over the U.S.'s history, to, to take a look at it. Um, but there's, there's a couple groups that I'm trying to address. One is um, what you might broadly call uh, conservatives. Mm-hmm. So conservatives, right, uh, believe in individual liberty, believe in limited government, but they're very wary sometimes, some of them, mm-hmm. from judges enforcing rights in the Constitution, particularly Mm. rights that aren't enumerated. Mm -hmm. And my Mm -hmm. argument uh, is that actually that's how Americans structure their constitutions. Um, uh, Unenumerated rights are not this weird outlier. They're normal. In fact, they're Mm -hmm. popular. And conservatives shouldn't be afraid of those rights. Mm-hmm. So you you could so for example, as some conservatives say to me, you know, I wouldn't want judges doing something like this because they might come up with like a positive right to, um, you know, all kinds of uh, welfare benefits mm-hmm. or or what have you, and that could cause, uh, you know, uh, uh, all kinds of of financial problems. Um, and so the, my, my response to that is, well, you could write a constitution that has those kinds of rights. I, I wouldn't agree with it, but mm-hmm. you could write a constitution like that. Mm-hmm. But that's not actually how they're structured. These, um, I remember earlier I, I, I gave you the, the words to the Ninth Amendment, and most states have pretty much exactly the same mm-hmm. words. What it says there is other rights retained by the people. What that means is rights that we have um in in uh as individual people and when we come together and this is kind of like you know going back to maybe your if you studied philosophy your days of reading uh, John Locke and thinkers mm-hmm. like that that we have we come together we form a social contract we give up some of our rights mm-hmm. uh so we allow ourselves to be taxed right mm-hmm. so we can have a government that keeps order and and, and that kind of thing but we retain most of those rights so we mm-hmm. give up some, but we retain them. Mm-hmm. And so it's those rights that we're talking about. Your right to choose the education for your child. Your right to choose where you want to work. Your, your right to do, you know, choose what you want to eat. Mm-hmm. Um, all these basic liberties, no one would say, well, those aren't important. They're mm-hmm. actually rights just beyond what we're going to list in the Constitution, but they're, they're natural rights that judges should be protecting. Right. On the other side... Uh, this is a pitch to um, progressives, and that uh, they shouldn't be afraid of allowing st- 
states to organize their uh, their rights uh, as they think fit for them. And if they're going to protect liberty at the state level, we should allow that and not depend on everything to be done through the federal constitution. Mm. And so um, I think there's a little bit in there for uh, for a lot of people who might be interested in expanding liberty, right? We're in, into expanding liberty in all kinds of ways at the Institute mm-hmm. for Justice, yeah. um, including educational freedom. And so those are the, uh, the, the kind of within the legal community, the messages that we're trying to get out. Hmm. Well, so, Mr. Sanders, how would your book address, and again, I, I did go online, I thought, well, maybe I can read this really quick before you, and thought, <laughs> oh, well, it's not out yet, so I can't read it, so I haven't read it. <laughs> so you may address this in the book, but then I would be very curious to know, then, how does that dovetail with some of the concerns of judicial activism in finding, and you did address that a little bit, finding rights that, mm-hmm. again, if they're not listed, are they not then up to the, um, you know, the individual, you know, basically what did the judge eat for breakfast that morning when he's hearing the case type right. situation? How right. did you address that in the book? I'd love to hear more. Yes, yes. So, so I do. So we, we at the Center for Judicial Engagement, um, we address this, this question basically all the time about um, fears of, of activist judges. Mm-hmm. Now, uh, a, a judge doing something that is not in the Constitution and, and you know, uh, mandating the government to do something uh, can always be a fear, but it is a much more overblown fear than the opposite, which is a judge not taking the Constitution seriously and, and allowing the, the government to run roughshod over individual liberties. Mm-hmm. So the, there's a people you know, often talk about judicial activism. Usually what that means is, I don't like what the court did in this case. Mm-hmm. I don't know why I don't like what it did, so I'm going to call it judicial activism. Um, real judicial activism, I feel, where it's properly called that, is where the, the judge went beyond what the, the law says and kind of, you know, made something up for and making policy. Mm-hmm. That happens, but it is not the fear um, that, that people generally have of it. Um, but if you're worried about, say, judges making up rights, um, that is, as I explain it explore in the book, how our constitutions are written are not that judges make up rights. They're that we have a broad protection of our individual liter- liberty, also our uh, protection uh, within that of our property rights. And um, the balance then is between the government legitimately, uh, you know, having laws to protect uh, our rights, protect our property, and then that being weighed against individual liberty. So whenever you have a claim about, you know, they're they're violating my freedom of speech, they're violating my my property rights, um, that is going to depend on actual facts that you get to introduce in court and that the judge can take a look at and the government can do the same thing and then come to uh, a conclusion over whether this is a justified restriction on your liberty or whether it isn't. Now, far too often what happens um, in actual constitutional cases is that the, the court says, well, facts don't matter, I defer to the government, and mm-hmm. so, therefore, you're, you're going to win. It's really only the outliers that you hear about where 
um, the judge goes the other way. And really what should be happening here is Americans write their constitutions to protect individual liberty. The government has um, some powers that it can exercise, look at the actual facts to see um, whether they've overstepped their bounds, and then the judge can can rule accordingly. Mm. Okay. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that would be very that'd be very interesting then to read that chapter of the book because I do think that that on you know on a variety of and you know variety of the political spectrum you do hear mm, concerns from people that wouldn't necessarily agree politically on different topics on that. So I'm sure that that would be really interesting for readers. Mm -hmm. Um, What else would you like to tell us about within this book? You know, we've got about four minutes left, really just three. Um, And I feel like because you wrote the book, Andrew, I really want to give you, or Anthony, I'm sorry. um, I really want to give you the opportunity to, Kind of share something like the one more thing that you really want readers or listeners to know about the book. Yeah, I appreciate that. And um, one, the, the funnest thing I had in writing the book is actually um, not so much the, the the Constitution or the you know the the, the principle of uh, the the rights that are I argue should be protected, but just some of the history. And mm-hmm. if you um, you know, if you're maybe a student of American history, you know about the story of the founding and then the creation of the different states and, and all that. But you don't know some of the, the details about how that was put together, especially when, when it comes to state constitutions. Mm-hmm. Then I encourage you to, to take uh, a look at the book, which, again, is available, will be available on May 9th for free. <laughs> That's um, amazing. Yeah. The the great thing about this story um, and uh, and about my, my the research I got to do is that because it covers so many states, I kind of have to go through a history of how the states were founded and how they started they, they created their constitution. So mm-hmm. um, when when a when a state in historically is admitted to the union, one of the things they have to do in order to be admitted is to make their own. Constitution, and this happened from the earliest days uh, of the republic, other than the the, the original states them, themselves. Um, and when they would do that, they would get together in a convention, hash it out over a few days, come up with some constitution. Uh, it would go to go to D.C. Sometimes Congress didn't like a couple things that they said, so they'd send it back, they'd redo it, and they'd mm. send it again. And during the course of all this. Uh, they would draw up a Bill of Rights, and what I show in the book is often uh, they would then take this language from the Ninth Amendment. It started that they wouldn't do it very much. Mm-hmm. Then as the country progressed, they would do it more and more. And then um, in after the Civil War and beyond, it basically was every state uh, would have one of these broad protections of rights because it just kind of became a, a part of American constitutionalism. Hmm. One other story I tell in the book, which some listeners will know, but I, I just always think is, is great, is um, Minnesota is the only state that effectively had two conventions at the same time when it drew up its constitution. Huh. And that's because it had a convention, and then the two sides, the Republicans and Democrats, and this is in 1857, wow. to show you how little uh, changes over the years, yeah. they couldn't <laughs> even meet in the same room. 
<laughs> two separate conventions, just like uh, I think it was actually in the same building, or it was it was near each other, and they came up with their own constitutions. And then near the end of the the whole uh, period, they had to get together in kind of a conference committee and hammer out a, a compromise constitution. That the two versions weren't all that different, yeah. to tell you the truth. Can you imagine being a fly on the wall during that their- conference committee? <laughs> 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 Eventually, they came to a compromise, and uh, and that's how we had the Minnesota Constitution. I love it. You are so right, and we are we are out of time. But you are so right. Not much has changed. <laughs> exactly what we're facing now, nationwide, not just in Minnesota. So, well, thank you, Anthony, and best wishes on the book. And thank you for enlightening our audience tonight on the unenumerated rights in the Minnesota State Constitution, as well as our federal constitution. And, yeah, thank uh, you both so very much. Yeah, you have a great night, and thank you, listeners. And uh, you can check out this podcast and other podcasts at savetheclassroom.com, savetheclassroom.com. Check us out on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. See you next week. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal record to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.